0: Are you still buying your meat from the supermarket? If so, you simply don't know what you're getting. Was the animal treated ethically? Was it fed contaminated grain? Was it chemically treated just before processing? If you care about your health and that of the animal, you'll want to know the answers to these questions. Thankfully, buying directly from the farmer solves for all these problems. Jake and Anne Walkie run Walkie Farms, a regenerative operation in Albury, New South Wales, raising beef, lamb, pastured pork, and eggs to the highest standards of animal welfare, land stewardship, and chemical-free practice. I am excited to partner with Walkie Farm to offer you 10% off the entire Walkie range, from delicious steaks to sausages, lamb rocks, racks, and even Lard and tallow to replace your seed oils. All orders are packaged and shipped frozen to your door all around Australia. If you have a local farm, by all means, source from them. But if you lack easy access to regenerative produce, then Walkie Farms have you covered. Use code DRMAX at the checkout. That's D R M A X for 10% off circadian health is a bedrock of optimal health no matter your exercise routine or how clean your diet if you disrespect your light environment you will get sick cancer diabetes obesity mental health disorders autoimmune disease thyroid problems are just some of the issues that can either be worsened or fixed with circadian choices my 30-day circadian reset is a guided program to help you learn the basics of circadian health for 30 days we focus strictly on on things like seeing every sunrise, spending as much time grounded as possible, taking sun breaks throughout the day, and blocking blue light and artificial light at night. When you join up, you'll get access to four hours of lessons on how to make key circadian changes, as well as weekly live Q&As. If this is something that you're interested in, Then join up today because we start on June the 1st. And if you need some basic equipment, including blue blocking glasses and circadian friendly lighting, then use my code DrMax on bondcharge.com to grab all of these products. Now, onto the show. Welcome back to the Regenerative Health Podcast. I'm Dr. Max Golhain. Tonight, I am joined by Dr. Jalal Khan. Now, Dr. Khan is a dentist and a quantum health clinician who I believe is uh, one of the leading voices of quantum health and circadian biology in, in Australia right now. So I'm extremely excited to sit down and have a discussion with him tonight. So Jalal, thanks for coming on. Thanks so much for having me, Max. So I guess the the prelude to this conversation is the extensive three part series that I did with Doctor Jack Cruz, and that was really, uh, for at least for my audience, uh, an introduction to quantum health, to circadian health, and this I guess this idea of physics as the base layer. Or the base level of analysis for health, rather than simply a biochemistry type lens. So uh, I wanted to get you on Jalal, because your perspectives are so informative and, and very, uh, very easily accessible. I think um, in terms of an entry point for people in into quantum uh, and circadian health. So so maybe we'll start with a bit of a perspective from your point of view. Of what is quantum health, and what is how do you think about Circadian biology and circadian health.
1: Sure, that's a big question to open up with. But um, I mean, quantum health is basically a a model of health care and healing, which is respectful of the fact that our bodies are essentially energetic beings, and uh, we have all of these electrons and protons inside of us that are reacting, reacting to different frequencies of light. And the sun, as you and I both know, has got varying frequencies of light at any time of the day. And as those change, the way that the electrons and protons dance on the water inside of our bodies, it changes as well. They change as well. And so once we understand the scale at which our bodies operate and the energy and information that flows through our body how that is operating, um, it changes the lens at which we start to approach the way that we try and heal patients because what we've got right now is many well-meaning healthcare practitioners in the medical space and the allied health space who are trying to heal patients um, who have issues at the quantum scale but they're trying to use biochemical or biological modalities to heal the patients. And those types of modalities only get you so far. Um, So essentially, that is what quantum health means to me. It's respecting of the fact that uh, light has a huge role to play in how we have evolved. Something we might touch on later, but also um, the health outcomes that we are experiencing right now, or the adverse health outcomes, so to speak.
0: Yeah, circadian
1: biology. Circadian biology is ties really nicely into quantum health because we talked about light just a little while ago and circadian biology is the i guess the understanding of how the light runs all of the cycles and pathways that are happening inside of our body because we've got all these feedback loops that are happening and we've got for instance mitochondria have all of these um cytochromes which are alternating between nad and nadh and back to nad etc and all of those things are coupled to circadian cycles Um, which are run by the light of the sun predominantly. And so essentially, this circadian or chronobiology goes hand in hand with quantum health. Um, And for me, the bedrock of any health or healing journey is correcting that circadian and chronobiology
0: first. Yeah, that's great. And, And look, the reason why we're having this conversation is we're, as clinicians, trying to get to a layer of truth. Because we're observing this level of disease and and uh, uh, and sickness in in people and patients, this this uh, a lack of thriving, all, all these medical conditions and and just general uh, health problems are, are are exist. And and what we're look, trying to do is identify their their fundamental causes and then offer solutions and i I really like the circadian lens and i like the quantum lens because it has a level of explainability that we as traditionally trained mainstream medical doctors don't don't uh, look at things and when you mentioned that um you know people have sometimes have a quantum problem for which biochemistry isn't Going to help. I mean, I, I'm immediately reminded of of lots of our pharmaceutical treatments for chronic diseases, specifically, and the fact that there's the system's broken in in a particular way, and maybe that is from a lack of sunlight or um, a lack a degree of circadian disruption, and uh, treating the manifestations of that problem with with pharmaceutical medications is simply is um, is doomed to fail because it's it's not at that level of. Of, it's not even on the correct level of um, the, the the same problem. So, I mean, there's so many different directions we could go uh, with, with this conversation, but I think what I'm trying to do particularly is reconcile and try and bridge the two parts or several parts of more holistic medicine. And uh, especially on from a conventionally trained point of view, the low-carb and the metabolic type medicine is um, one very, very... Strong and an effective approach in terms of helping people, but uh, what uh, Dr. Jack Cruz would say is that it, this isn't a, a food problem, and in many cases, it isn't a food problem. And one of the things that he says most commonly, um, which we, I, I'd really like to get your take on Jalal, is that food is simply uh, a light. Food is simply an electromagnetic barcode of of the photosynthesis. Of photosynthesis, and that is a, is a very uh, interesting way of looking at uh, at at things and looking at food. But uh, essentially, that is uh, how he how he sees it. Uh, I'd like if you could to pause out that that phrase and pause out that comment for the listener. And and what, why should they consider food as uh, as uh, photosynthesis, and, and what, why is that relevant um, for for health? so
1: food is essentially grown via photosynthesis and we all learned about that in u3 science and photosynthesis essentially means if you break down the word photo and synthesis the synthesis through the photons of light so there must be some sort of storage of that light information within the food so that the food is able to grow So that's the first thing. The second thing is that it's not only storing energy, but it is also storing information. And it is that second word, information, which is often overlooked when we are looking at the organism, whether it's an animal or whether it's it's a human, when we are looking at the organism from a lens of biochemistry or biology. And information is where we... Go straight down into the quantum lens. So, how is that information passed from the sun into the food? Because the way it's done is electrons inside of food, inside of the chlorophyll, which is um, the light receiving, uh, which is light receiving protein inside of plants. It receives light from the sun, and that light has a specific spin to it. And we call that a quantum spin. And that spin is different for the different frequencies of light. So, if we then extrapolate that out to the world map, there are some parts of the world that are in winter, and then there are some parts of the world that are in summer. And so, naturally, the sun at those different latitudes, at those different longitudes, even, um, are going to be different. And so, the nature of the food. That's grown is different and that's all based on the power density of the sun as well as the electron the quantum spin that is being passed from the photons to the electrons so when dr cruz says that it is a electromagnetic barcode for the light environment that the food is grown in it is not just storing energy but it is also storing information and what we do is you have to kind of think of food as for want of a better example You've gone to the supermarket and you've picked up a few items off the shelves and you go to the checkout and you're scanning the items across the barcode scanner and how is that then being reconciled with the point-of-sale system that is checking those barcodes? Um, So who who is the checkout boy? Who is the checkout girl? That is our mitochondria. And so our mitochondria at the same time are sensing the environment that we are living under and coupling that to the information that is contained within the food to make sure that they are both the same thing. And so what we have at the moment because of globalization and because of the um, luxuries of society these days, we're eating foods that are not being grown In the same environment that we are living in. So it's like you're trying to fit a triangle within a a square. It just doesn't work. And what that does to the mitochondria is essentially strip the mitochondria of its ability to harvest energy and information from the inputs that it is receiving. And that leads to a breakdown in energy production and a breakdown in information transfer and communication. And that's how we start to see a breakdown of the cell, the tissue, the organ, and the organism slowly but surely over time. That's the quantum breakdown that's happening. So food is essentially an electromagnetic barcode for the light that it is grown under, and we need to be living under that same light in order for things to marry up nicely at the mitochondria, which is the stage where the match is happening
0: yeah, great, great explanation and the, the most common I- example that I think is given is this idea that if you're eating a banana in, in the middle of uh, Tasmanian or perhaps Albury winter that was grown in northern Queensland or maybe even imported from a higher latitude, that that banana when it was eaten at the place it was grown might, might be a health food. Uh, when it's eaten out of season in during that winter time lower down it, it no longer is a health food at all and it becomes a, a high highly inflammatory uh, a stimulus and I think people who are, who might eat in that way out of, out of season would hundred percent be contributing to uh, development of metabolic dysfunction um and you know me- metabolic syndrome and making that those problems worse. so it, it, it makes so much sense when we look through uh, especially an ancestral or an evolutionary lens is that prior to the development of uh, complex supply chains and and international uh, transport of, of goods that, it was very unusual to be able to have. Or it was impossible to have access to food grown hundreds of kilometers away, and, and people were simply just consuming what was grown locally. Um, and then we've got the situation now where you can buy all kinds of tropical fruits uh, at uh, out of latitude, but you can also buy refined foods which were grown, um, you know, and altered in in all kinds of ways. So um, I think that's a nuance that is definitely missed when. We're talking about only a, a low carb diet, or um, spec- specifically uh, those dietary interventions. Is that that we're, we're missing, or it's common for a practitioner to miss the nuance, which is uh, what might be appropriate for someone at a high latitude um, is not necessarily at season is not necessarily appropriate seasonally for someone else. Um, so, yeah, what do you have any comments on that?
1: I do I think um there is some merit to some of these interventional diets, but I say that with um some caution because I think there's merit in the short term because these diets are good at rescuing the situation for someone that is really metabolically unwell, and what the proponents of these interventions need to understand is that the reason that these dietary interventions are working is because they are subtracting out so much of the so much of the the bad stuff that is in processed foods and the most the most common example ubiquitous example of that is deuterium so when you have low carb foods when you have a carnivore diet what you are essentially extracting is deuterium from your diet and what that allows your mitochondria to do is to breathe properly so that 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 home for metabolism, the mitochondria, can now function properly because it's not being overloaded with deuterium. And once it starts to kick into gear and in the ATP synthase starts to make ATP and the full cytochrome starts to make water, that's when we can start to reverse the heteroplasmy that develops inside of tissues. So there are many doctors who are and nutritionists and other healthcare practitioners who are making recommendations about these type of dietary interventions. But there are some notable examples who are living in South America and uh, recommending these interventions, but they're living in an optimal environment as well. And so I kind of watched the videos with a right smile because they've got beautiful melanin, they've got beautiful skin, they're exposed in nature, they're constantly harvesting electrons from their environment. And they've yet to understand that the reason that they are well is not necessarily just a food story, but also an environmental story as well, um, <laughs> which is all about um, returning to the sun and returning to nature and harvesting electrons.
0: And, I, and I'm glad you uh, made that specific reference. And even though you haven't um, named the person in in detail i will um and you obviously we we're referring to dr paul saladino who has done amazing work uh furthering uh, animal-based diet and at the moment uh, advocates quite um quite strongly for uh, fruit consumption and honey consumption and i've got immense respect for dr saladino and i Me too. I, th- I think he's done 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 amazing work but i i agree that um, so he used to be a strict carnivore, and since uh, uh, incorporated uh, fruit, and he is maintained amazing insulin sensitivity. He's fasting insulin levels still three. He's got um, uh, no visceral fat. He's he's extremely healthy uh, despite consuming three hundred grams of carbohydrates per day in the form of fruit and honey uh, and and milk. The this is exactly the point I'm making, and maybe. Um, Well, I can talk to, we'll talk to Paul at some point about this. But the nuance is that if some of my metabolically unwell patients, ones with fatty liver disease, the ones with um, visceral fat and type 2 diabetes, ate the same diet at my latitude here, uh, 36th South latitude in Albury during winter they would be a train wreck. It would be a disaster, uh, and they would be 100% worsening their, their metabolic problems. And the reason is because, as you alluded to, Jalal, is because the solar yield uh, in in uh, in Central America where, where Dr. Saldino lives is enormous. All the fruit that he's eating is completely seasonal. And he is getting—he's uh, uh, completely regulated from a circadian biology point of view. So the the fructose and all the carbohydrates that he's consuming uh, aren't becoming uh, or aren't contributing to a metabolic dysfunction disease process. But it's not per se because of exactly that what he's eating isn't inherently harmful. It's the context and the solar yield and the quantum rules that he is respecting is why he's he's not getting sick in my opinion
1: you're spot on and that's what we need to get people to understand and even these clinicians as well paul needs to take that step up and start to understand exactly why his way of living is working and um, how it's not just related to food that he's eating because he's um, a, a dominant figure in this space for the for the right reasons but if he um if he's going to be recommending to patients or patients are going to see what he's eating and eat accordingly at a different latitude to him, it's going to cause them harm. And this is, I feel, uh, an issue in the metabolic nutritional health space where people are recommending um, – on social media posts etc that you know this is what you should eat this is what you shouldn't eat etc but it doesn't work like that people ask me all the time what do you eat and i say it doesn't matter because it's a different context to you it's all about zip code so our um our, our way of eating needs to be i refrain from using the word diet so because in my opinion there's no such thing there should just be a way of eating um our way of eating My way of eating is suited to my context and your way of eating should be suited to your context. And I provide personalized advice based on people's context, not just their latitude, but where they're living. Is it a high-density environment? What is their relationship with nature? All of these types of things so that they can um, maximize their quantum yield from the food that they're eating.
0: Yes, and it makes so so much sense when we take this uh this frame of view, is because you can see how effective uh, a kind carniv- of why carnivore is so effective because what what grows year round, um, even at lower latitudes, will ruminant herbivores do, uh you know goats, uh cows, yes. um deer, well, at, they're, they're they're abundant and they're local at, at lots of different um areas. So when we go on a carnivore diet, especially a local carnivore diet, and um, we we're eating a, a diet that is in co- congruence with with our location on the planet, and it inevitably induces uh, a healing, healing and facilitates people um, reversing a lot of their their diseases and their mod- metabolic issues. So, um, and that's that's me making the the point that um, carnivore is definitely is a very powerful intervention and it's one that I use quite frequently in my clinic and but there is nuance here and the nuance makes sense when we take a perspective of uh, quantum biology and understand this idea of solar yield photosynthesis uh, seasonality and look I want to make the point that you know when I give give my patients kind of advice about what to eat the, the first rule on my list uh, even before we we talk about specifically processed foods is eat seasonally and locally because if we yes. implement um, that one rule, then it's like the it's like the umbrella rule because everything else will just make sense in the context of that in the context of that rule. So um, I, I liked your point, Jalal. Uh, I guess which is an invitation, and it's an invitation to our our colleagues um, who are operating from a dietary centric paradigm to consider the nuances of. Um, of what we mentioned and this idea that what might be appropriate for someone at one latitude um, and health status is going to be completely different uh, to someone living in a different context.
1: I would go as far as to say it's not just an invitation. I implore them to, and the reason I implore them to is because fundamentally metabolic issues um, are not the bedrock of all health issues. It is still circadian dysfunction. And we might be able to rescue someone in their 30s from metabolic dysfunction through dietary changes and dietary interventions. But at the end of the day, if we do not have that circadian discussion with them, then we are still not addressing the underlying circadian disruption, which is putting them on the road towards neurodegenerative diseases, cardiovascular diseases, um, as well as autoimmune diseases and um it's really as well as cancer of course so it's really really important that our colleagues start to push themselves and find the time to understand this because me as a dentist my first conversation with practically every single patient is about circadian um, biology and how they need to change their relationship with light and that's got very little to do with tooth decay if I'm honest but it's just something which I feel compelled to say to practically everybody I meet because someone's going to listen, and it's going to change the course of a family's health.
0: Yes, and uh, maybe maybe uh, Doctor Saldina will come across this interview and happy to have a chat to him at any <laughs> time. I'm sure you would too, Jalal, and we can we can discuss these ideas before we. Um, I wanted to to go back and just clarify for the audience. You mentioned deuterium. now deuterium is, is a very, very kind of interesting topic and it's in itself very, very deep. But, but basically, what is deuterium and what's the problem with deuterium?
1: So deuterium is what we call an isotope of hydrogen. So um, hydrogen is the first element on the periodic table and it is essentially the foundation upon which every subsequent element on the periodic table is built. So in my opinion, if we do not understand hydrogen physics and hydrogen chemistry, then we're just looking in the wrong place. We need to start there. So as listeners can probably tell, I tend to go foundational in terms of whenever I'm looking at health because if we don't understand those first bricks, what's the point of understanding the rest? And so hydrogen, um, when it's stripped of its electron, well, uh, hydrogen when – It is a proton when it's got one proton in the nucleus and it's got an electron surrounding it or orbiting it. Um, deuterium is slightly different because it's the exact same configuration where you have that proton in the nucleus, but you also have a neutron in the nucleus as well, and a new as well as that electron that is orbiting around the nucleus. So a neutron has no charge, it's a neutral charge, so it doesn't actually change the. Charge density of the hydrogen proton, so to speak, but it has the same size of mass as the other proton that's in the nucleus. So, what we are essentially doing is we are doubling the mass of the nucleus. We are creating what's called a heavy hydrogen. We are not creating it per se, this is just something which Mother Nature has made. And it's not toxic because it's necessary for other reasons in our body. Um, but when deuterium is in the wrong place in our body, it can start to cause a breakdown in, um, in metabolism. And I mean, deuterium is one of those things where in the ocean water, it's about 150 to 155 parts per million. So it's naturally occurring and uh, it's buried in food as well. And we have processes inside of our bodies, such as the TCA cycle, the citric acid cycle, which are able to strip hydrogens off molecules, check whether they are hydrogens or deuteriums, and then put them back on. And that's how we're able to weed out the deuteriums. Um, that's one way we do it. Um, and the purpose of it is that um, to go into a little bit of the weeds of mitochondria, there is uh, there is five kinds of proteins that are lined up, um, one next to the other inside the mitochondria, and electrons travel from one side all the way across to the other side. But while the electrons are travelling across, hydrogen protons are being pumped out and they start to form a gradient where there's a higher concentration above and a lower concentration below. And so they want to come back down. And as they come back down um, from one side of the membrane to the other side of the membrane, they come down through something called ATP synthase, which is the fifth protein in that electron transport chain. And that is where um, ATP is made. Normal hydrogen protons can fit through. Deuteriums can't because they're too physically big. So a normal hydrogen proton is like me weighing 70 kilos in this frame. A deuterium is me weighing 140 kilos within this frame. I'm just too heavy. I can't fit through. And so ATP can't be made. The mitochondria breaks down. And then you need melatonin to come around and repair the mitochondria. But we've got an entire society bathing in blue light which destroys our, or degrades our melatonin levels. And so the very machinery we have to rescue the situation is also degraded. And so this is one big reason why altered light environments are um, creating havoc at the metabolic level. And the reason why carnivore diets and low-carb diets are good is because they're low in carbs, and deuterium is mostly buried in the carbs that we eat.
0: Yeah, and... To give another analogy, you know, imagine if you were uh, 140 or larger. I mean, and you people are trying to you're trying to get through a doorway, and normal sized Jalal can fit through a doorway, but uh, Deuterium Jalal um, is is too large and will will get stuck in the doorframe. So essentially, if we imagine that the mitochondria have uh, this electron transport chain occurring um, in the membrane, and you've got you know how many thousand mitochondria per cell, and how many, um, you know, billion, trillion cells in our in our bodies. That if if this is occurring in every single mitochondria, then you're going to get some that don't work properly. And when you get the mitochondria that fail from an energetic point of view, because um, they're not producing energy efficiently, the cell's energy output is going to start um, dropping. And then when the cell's energy uh, drops, then its ability to regulate the the well, to regulate the nuclear genome um, is impaired, and this idea, which you mentioned the word earlier, mitochondrial heteroplasmy, is. Um, I mean, I'll get get you to explain it, but from how I think about it, is that it it's the this idea that um, there's accumulation of uh, mutations within mitochondrial DNA that um, to to certain degrees impair their function, and then when there's sufficient dysfunction, then uh, the mitochondria stop stop working and then uh, diseases manifest not because of necessarily nuclear uh, or problems with the nuclear genome, but because the energy production of the cell and the mitochondrial um, uh, expression regulation of those genes is impaired um, and that that's dog wallace's bioenergetic model of disease which you mentioned in in your recent talk at regenerate and i've done a, a little video on myself so uh yeah i'd love to get your thoughts on mitochondrial heteroplasmy as it as it re- relates to deuterium that we just talked about
1: Yeah, so m- much like a, a car engine has an exhaust when it's burning fuel so does the mitochondria and that's what we call free radicals or reactive oxygen species. And so the free radicals are essentially electrons that escape from that first protein, cytochrome, to, um, to the other side. They're, along the way, they escape and they interact with oxygen to create reactive oxygen species. There are another type of radical called reactive nitrogen species as well. And these um, reactive species are actually important because they're actually um, signaling molecules. So they actually tell the nuclear DNA what's going on. This is why the mitochondria are like literally the bedrock of of everything because they're sensing the environment because each of those proteins are specific receivers for different frequencies of light so that first protein in the electron transport chain is a uv light receiver and the fourth and the fifth are red light receivers and there's research to show that blue light degrades the ability of all of those proteins from working properly and when i say blue light i mean blue light on its own because in natural sunlight we're never expe- exposed to blue light on its own we're always exposed to blue light that's balanced by red as well as other frequencies so when you have a mismatch in the types of food that you're eating, um, if you're not eating seasonally and locally, that starts to make the proteins spread out. And so there are other reasons as well, complete disconnect from nature, bathing yourself in non-native electromagnetic frequencies, not grounding, not going to the beach enough, all those types of things. The proteins start to spread out, and as they start to spread out, it's more difficult for the electrons to quantum tunnel from the first protein to the next. And I say quantum tunnel because it is a quantum phenomenon that happens when the electrons move from the first protein to the next one. So If you get too many electrons escaping, they start to target the mitochondrial DNA, which is sitting right next to the first cytochrome. And The mitochondrial DNA, unlike the nuclear DNA, um, is unprotected, and so it's very, very vulnerable to damage from these reactive species. So... When the mitochondrial DNA gets affected, then its ability to make new proteins for that electron transport chain get affected. So it starts to make defective new proteins, because there's, I think, 37 genes and 13 of them code for um, the proteins that are in that electron transport chain. 37 genes in the mitochondrial DNA, I'm saying, Um, And so when you start to get defective proteins, that makes the electron transfer even worse. So then you start to get more leakage of electrons. And so you can start to see how it's just a ball rolling down the hill that's just, just getting worse and worse and worse. Um, so if I rewind and say we do need some signaling because you always do need a little bit of an exhaust from an engine, and so that's important to that that controlled signaling of these reactive species is important the important mechanism of how the mitochondria tell the nucleus inside of our cell what's going on. The nucleus takes that message and reacts accordingly and expresses proteins accordingly. But if we have too much signaling from the mitochondria, then we start to get errant signaling of the nuclear DNA and we start to get new genes being read in a different way. So for instance, the word playground. Could instead of being um, read as the word ground, might be read as the word play. And so we start to see a completely different protein being made with a different size and a different shape. And that's how that protein then behaves differently. And that's how things start to go awry.
0: Yeah. And uh, I would definitely encourage people who are interested to read Doug Wallace's paper, uh, the the bio- model of disease, because it, it it's really something that more adequately explains why we're getting uh, a whole bunch of chronic diseases, neurodegenerative diseases, uh, metabolic diseases that essentially can't be pinned down to a s- single nuclear gene, so they're not monogenic. Um, so in in medicine, we have certain conditions that res- that result from a single gene mutation, um, and that's a good reminder when we talk about POMC later, uh, Jalal. That uh, you know certain single gene mutations can be responsible for for a disease in and of themselves, but for many people, um, we're not pinning it down to a single gene. And in this, for, for these these cases of just, uh, we're suggesting that it's a cumulative, progressive degradation in the capacity of your mitochondria to make energy, and therefore um, the the loss of their – uh, proper function uh, is that, that is leading to um, to disease the I, w- I want you to make the point uh, a little bit stronger about mitochondria as, as light sensors and because there's a lot of people who talk about mitochondria and they talk about the electron transport chain but they haven't mentioned what you mentioned which is that each of these cytochromes uh, or proteins that are responsible uh, in the electron transport chain or this process of energy generation in, in the mitochondria, um, they receive different frequencies of light. So so talk a little bit about that that function that they have, if you could.
1: Yeah, so uh, building on this topic of mitochondria, not just being power plants or batteries or energy producers inside the cell, they're environmental sensors, how are they sensing the environment? And so one way is they are reading the energy and information that's buried in the food. But another way is that the very mechanisms um, that are used to build that electron transport chain, those five proteins, those five wafers, so to speak, because it is a semiconductor, um, those proteins are individually sensors for different frequencies of light. So I touched on how the first one is a UV light frequency, and that is a reason why... Electrons that are eaten from or received from the body um, from carbohydrates feed in at cytochrome 1 because carbohydrates can only be grown in UV light. And so it's only natural then for the electrons from carbohydrates to feed into the first cytochrome, which is a UV light receiver. And then you've got different other cytochromes like the fourth and the fifth, for instance, which are red light receivers. And we have something called the Q-cycle inside the mitochondria, which takes the UV light that is being received at cytochrome 1 and chops it up so that red light can be released and that red light can act locally on the fourth and fifth cytochromes in order to increase their function. And so what we start to see is interplay between – when you look at the body at the biophysics level, you see an interplay between UV light and, and red light most of the time. And so UV light has its role and then um, – to amplify things, but then it has this role to slow down things as well. And so one of the things that UV light does inside the mitochondria is that it actually slows down the electron transport chain. And um, the one of the ways it does that is UV light um, exposure onto our surfaces, our skin, our eyes, etc., cetera, um, results in the release of nitric oxide. And nitric oxide can act on that fourth cytochrome to stop it. And so when you stop electron transport you're able to become more thermodynamically efficient but it doesn't act on the fifth one it only acts on the fourth one this is where it starts to get pretty cool because you've still got the red light of the sun theoretically if you're outside which is still able to make the fifth cytochrome turn and so you're still able to make atp even though you're in uv light which is slowing down the electron transport chain so what i'm basically trying to say is when you're out in the sun in a uv light environment your body's requirement for energy from food is less. That's why you feel less hungry at the beach because your system has become more thermodynamically efficient and um, you're still able to make ATP to drive bodily processes, but at the same time, you're not needing to necessarily feed the engine all the time.
0: Yeah, it's incredibly elegant. And how nature has designed our, our biology and our organism to in perfect synchrony with with the light frequencies, with the environment, with the water, with 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 everything, and it it kind of it makes me marvel at this, I guess, hubris that um, um that a lot of uh, that that reflects the scientific thought of the day when when you get. Advice to avoid sunlight um, by by any means necessary. You know, put sunglasses on your your six year old um, when he's in the playground, and and make sure he's slathered in sunscreen because uh, you know there's a risk of skin cancer. But it it really betrays such a misunderstanding of the fundamentals of human biology when you realise that uh, you have proteins you know, within every mitochondria that sense UV light and you have photoreceptors you know, throughout your eye and your skin that also, um, uh, well, neuropsin is spe- especially expressed in the brain that, that are UV light sensors. So it makes me think, um, you know, how deep this story goes and how superficially it's being interpreted in terms of mainstream narratives uh, mm-hmm. with regard to, to something like UV light Yeah I think it's a great point you raise about this demonization of
1: UV light and it's easy for us to fall into the trap of criticizing parents or um, schools etc for the slip-slop-slap type of uh, messaging that's out there which is based on public health messaging Um, but uh the angle that we really have to go for is uh, one of kind of just education and compassion and trying to pique their curiosity about the fact that there might actually be a, a good aspect to UV light because, uh, and the way that I usually like to do it is I just um, like to go a little bit technical and I say that every cell in our body emits an ultra low frequency UV light that is uh, stronger than the frequency of terrestrial sunlight. And most people, when they hear that, their jaws drop. So then I'm like, if you're making UV light that's stronger than terrestrial sunlight, it can't all be that bad. Um, And so then that leads into the discussion, not necessarily about the quantum physics or biophysics behind how we're making UVC light, but more about, okay, well, what are the different frequencies of UV light? What are the times throughout the day where they're coming out? What is the purpose of each? Because we know that nature doesn't make mistakes. There's a reason for UVA light. There's a reason for UVB light. And um, educating the patients or clients on um, how they can harness the power of UV light to affect change in their health and in their children's health. So it's um I have um, definitely pivoted in my approach rather than criticizing more education and um, compassion. Um, Sometimes it's met with um, most ignorance is just genuinely ignorance. Some of it is arrogant ignorance, which is hard for me to fathom sometimes, but it happens. Um, But uh, those that are genuinely just ignorant and uh, have a curiosity about them will more often than not listen and might start to change the way that they spend their weekends with their families. And for me, that's always a win.
0: yeah and and the com- that's great joel and the the conversation about uh the pivotal or the essential need of of u v light to human uh biology we'll talk about that some more when we talk about uh, POMC, c pro opio melanocortin uh because that is a key 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 protein uh or gene uh that is stimulated by u v light be and and look to be honest the 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 narratives are very much or oh, the prevailing advice is very much anti UV light is from the dermatology and ophthalmology professions. And it's it's difficult. And Dr. Cruz says something like, uh, you know, half truth leads to a full lie. And the association with um skin melanoma and non-melanoma skin cancers uh exists with uv light but it's a very very uh, well in terms of sun exposure but it's a very very nuanced uh topic and uh as we'll we'll talk about a little bit uh there is healthy ways of getting uv light exposure um that your biology needs without um without necessarily increasing your health risks before before we move on um because we, we we're going to go deep into to Pomsi, um soon. But I just want to tie a bow on the mitochondrial story that you were weaving very, very elegantly, Jalal. A- and that is a point that you made about free radicals and this idea that when the there's breakdown in the electron transport chain, these electrons get out and they cause havoc and they uh, basically co- cause inflammation. And uh, you mentioned a hormone called melatonin. And a lot of the listeners will know about melatonin as the thing that they take when they've traveled overseas and it helps them uh, or if they're having trouble sleeping they'll take some melatonin and help, help them go to sleep. So uh, essentially me- melatonin is a very important hormone that gets made uh, in two different places. One gets made in your um, pineal gland which is a gland uh, near your brain and and that, that melatonin gets made after dark. Uh, during during the night time to I guess deal with a lot of uh, oxidative stress uh, that has accumulated perhaps through throughout the day, but you also making melatonin at the site of your your mitochondria, um, which is specifically to quench that oxidative stress that occurs as a byproduct of, of normal mitochondrial function. So the way I like to think about it is: imagine if you had a fire extinguisher built into uh, or an engine, or a water cooling device built into all your engines, uh, it's it's that's your melatonin. It's quenching the, the excessive inflammation or heat, whatever you, however you want to think about it, that the engines generating, and you make that or the, the water cooling facility on your engine is stimulated by UVA uh, and, and and infrared light. So if you're not getting out into natural sunlight, because remember. Artificial light that that you have, um, that I'm sitting under right now, uh, and that most people exist under, it, it, it uh, it co- has no heat and it has no um non-visible uh, infrared or or um UV light. Yeah, so that's another p- piece light. of the puzzle.
1: Yeah, it is. Uh, melatonin is a very very key antioxidant type of molecule inside of our body there are others which are also important but melatonin is a a biggie particularly in the night time because it's critical for the two regulatory processes of mitochondria which are autophagy which is uh uh, cell repair or self-repair and uh, apoptosis which is programmed cell death so melatonin what people consider this uh, hormone of darkness but what they need to understand is that it's actually made in the morning sun so those that aren't sleeping well for instance struggling with um being a light sleeper or insomnia or something like that finding it hard to fall asleep then maybe they have a long sleep latency they need to fix their melatonin levels and the way to do that is to get out in the morning sun and get that uva rise into your eyes your naked eyes no contact no glasses no sunglasses which we've touched on and um that starts to program the production of melatonin. Um, What melatonin is also doing in addition to the autophagy and apoptosis is it actually helps to repair a lot of the damage that artificial blue light is doing to our cell surfaces, our cell membranes, as well as um, the mitochondrial membranes as well. It's made inside the mitochondria, so when someone is low on melatonin to me, it's an alarm bell that the mitochondria are not working optimally. And um, one tell for me is always that kind of, i put the dentist hat on. It's uh, the salivary cortisol melatonin assay, um, which is very, very good at um, telling us that interplay between cortisol and melatonin. So um, melatonin is kind of, I kind of think of it as an opposite to cortisol because of the effects that it has on the cell. And... Um, in that morning sun, it's trapping that UV light, keeping it within its within the molecule and releasing it in the nighttime. And you think about what I touched on earlier about how UV light slows down the electron transport chain to increase mitochondrial efficiency. If melatonin is releasing UV light inside the mitochondria during the nighttime, that reduces the energy demands of the cell so that the cell has more Thermodynamic efficiency to repair from all the oxidative processes that have happened to it throughout the day, with the physical activity and the fight or flight sympathetic drive, exposure to um, EMFs, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, melatonin really is this key molecule which has a, a huge role to play.
0: Yeah, and and look, there is so much to be said about about melatonin and how it's made and all that, but we we, we won't go go more, more deep than we have uh, on on that this time. You mentioned cortisol, and I think this is a great segue into uh what I want to talk about next, which is this compound called uh, pro-opio melanocortin. Uh specifically the, the the leptin melanocortin system. Now, if someone has listened to my, my series with Dr. Jack Cruz, um that is the the guy's central idea of, of the first podcast that we recorded. And the point that why why this is relevant um especially to someone who's interested in metabolic health is that the point that Dr. Cruz makes and the point that we'll talk about now is that this this i guess poly polypeptide hormone um, has a critical role in regulating um, metabolism and it has a bunch of other uh, effects including the stimulation of of, of cortisol release, um, and that is because uh ACTH or adrenocorticotropic hormone, um, which is reduced released by the pituitary gland, uh, in directly acts on uh, your adrenal glands to release cortisol, and and that is one of the hormones that gets cleaved off this this uh basically polypeptide chain. Um, so, so, Jalal, l- 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 why don't you give the listeners your thoughts or how do you cons- conceptualize this idea of pom- POMC, pro opioid melanocortin?
1: So, POMC, before I get into a little bit about POMC, we have to understand how the system works. We're not a closed system. So, uh, thermodynamics is like the statistical statistical physics, which is looking at closed systems. And anything that is a closed system has linear, Types of uh, processes or um, linear physics, where whatever goes in, equal and equivalent thing comes out. But because we are an open system, we have nonlinear optics that are happening inside of us. So when we receive a photon of light in our eye, for instance, it gets it gets amplified a million fold. And so when people start to understand the nonlinear nature of who we are as quantum thermodynamic beings, then it starts to then we start to ask the question, okay, so then what is the what are the structures, what is the mechanics of how this nonlinear system works? And so if we're going to be able to receive signals from the from our environment and amplify them inside of us, and that amplification then drives all of the metabolic pathways, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera, Let's look at what those amplification pathways are. And it all really starts with the surfaces. So we have four main surfaces inside of our body, which we use to interact with the environment. They are the eyes, the skin, the gut, and the respiratory system. All of the surfaces are loaded with POMC, particularly the eyes, the skin, and the gut. And so that must mean POMC must be pretty important because the surfaces are what we're using to harvest energy and information from the environment. Even the gut, it harvests energy from food and information from food. Eyes and skin have got opsins, which are photoreceptors inside of them, and they're non-visual photoreceptors that are receiving frequencies of light that we can't see or we can't perceive. Um, And examples of those are things like neuropsin as well as uh, Cholesterol is an example of a non-visual photoreceptor, so is melanin. And so we've got all these surfaces that we're using to interact with the environment that are loaded with this polypeptide called POMC. And what POMC does is, because it's a polypeptide, it's able to be chopped into different proteins based on the light that it is exposed to. And this is where the beauty comes, because as the nature of the sun changes throughout the day, The activities that POMC does or the proteins that are made from POMC alter throughout the day. And this is where the elegance of Mother Nature comes in. So in the morning, you've got uh, a sunlight which is heavy in red light and blue light. And blue light acts on POMC to cleave off something called ACTH, which you touched on. So it's the blue light acting on POMC to create ACTH, which acts on the adrenal cortex to affect the release of cortisol and we need cortisol early in the mornings to rouse us from our slumber so that we can get get up and start to get things done. Then the UV light starts to rise in the sun, and that starts to switch off the steroid hormones, of which one is cortisol. And once again, it's this interplay between the different light frequencies that are dancing with each other um, to affect change. Um, so where does leptin fit into all of this? Leptin is made in the... Subcutaneous fat cells, which are just underneath our skin, and it's released in the darkness of the night, generally around midnight, for someone with a good circadian signal. And that leptin then travels via the bloodstream to a part of the brain called the hypothalamus and acts on leptin receptors in the hypothalamus. And those leptin receptors are loaded on brain cells, neurons that are packed with POMC. So when the leptin docks on the receptor, it actually affects the cleavage of POMC into something called alpha-melanocyte-stimulating hormone, alpha-MSH. And so this is where you have the leptin and the cortin, melanocortin joined together because the leptin receptors are acting on neurons inside the brain that are loaded with POMC. And that POMC is making the alpha-MSH, which then goes to different parts of the brain, different parts of the body to affect the production of something called melanin. And so melanin really is one of those kind of end targets of the, melanin production is one of the end targets of the leptin-melanocortin pathway. And um, what leptin is carrying from the subcutaneous fat is information about how much energy is on board the system, so that the brain can then know, okay, this is how much energy we have, and it can then res- it can then control metabolic pathways and other things like fertility, etc., via the POMC because there are other peptides in the POMC uh, protein which can have um, control over things like fertility, fecundity, um, and all these. A- appetite control, mood as well. Beta endorphin is something that's made from POMC. Um, it's an opiate. So it's essentially saying that we are wired to the sun, wired to be addicted to the sun, particularly particularly that UV light, which affects the release of beta endorphin. So <clears throat> another case for why UV light is good for you. So uh, POMC is crucial because it's not only receiving that signal From leptin via the leptin receptor acting on POMC neurons. But POMC itself can get activated by UV light via the eyes and via the skin and via the gut. And it can use that UV light to cleave itself into the different proteins, which can then go and do what they need to do. So it's this nice kind of union between the energy and information signal that leptin carries, as well as the environmental signal that our surfaces are carrying and they all unite at pom c and that pom c is as i said it's loaded in our surfaces but it's also loaded in the key key pathway that is happening from our eye into the brain which is called the central retinal pathway so when light comes in through the eye you're not blocking it with contacts and glasses and sunglasses that uv light gets in it acts on the retina travels from the retina through to the hypothalamus inside the brain Hypothalamus relay, and all of this is loaded with POMC. It relays that information to the pituitary gland, which is the pharmacy inside of your brain that makes all of the important hormones that you need.
0: Yeah, amazing explanation, Joel. Uh, thanks for that, and I, I really liked your um, your conceptualization of of this. is really a master coordinator of so many different bodily processes, uh, as you said, metabolism um fecundity stress everything that it's like it really feels like it's the central controller uh of of a lot of things that's going on uh to use an analogy i was i've been thinking about this uh over the past couple weeks as i've been researching myself more into POMC, and to give people an idea conceptually of what this thing is is just imagine if you had uh you went. You went to buy a ticket to a company that owned, um, you know, six different theme parks, and that when when you went there, they printed out a, a very very long ticket, and uh, depending on which theme park you were at, they would cut your ticket up into a different section, and they'd take a little bit of uh, the ticket depending on which theme park you're at, and if it's in one state or one city, it'd be a little bit. Um, of the first part of the ticket, and if it's a different theme park, it'll be you know an end part or the middle part of the ticket, and then each of those tickets might even be cut up again, and you'll get on certain rides depending on which ticket you have. And what what that analogy is is this is this polypeptide hormone, and it's it's a long sequence, and if you cut it up in a certain place, you'll get that ACTH, you'll get adrenocorticotropic um, uh, hormone, but if you cut the first part of ACTH off. That first thirteen residues, you will get alpha MSH, and you'll get, and that that is going to have a different effect um, than the obviously than than ACTH on on different cells in different tissues. Uh, and yeah. if you're cutting another cutting another part off, you'll get um, you know gamma MSH, or you'll get beta endorphin, you'll get all these different um, effects, and. Each of the tissues of your body is going to, as you mentioned, Joel, express or be able to cleave up the POMC in a different way, and as you said, the different types of tissues that express POMC is all through that um, that eye and the retino-hypothalamic tract and, and the, per, the pituitary gland, but also the hypothalamus and 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 the the skin. So, um, it's it's so it's a central player because it's expressed at all these key areas that. That regulate um, the body's metabolism, and and I was doing a bit of research into the history of Pompey because it makes sense to me that when we're dealing with metabolic diseases and something like uh, you know obesity, fatty liver disease, uh, metabolic dysfunction, type two diabetes, that we really need to get to the core of what's going on, and as you mentioned leptin, which is a signal of, of how much energy we have on board, uh, is docking to a part of the brain that expresses POMC. Uh, and if we go back in history and we look at um, the evolutionary history of, of POMC, then we can see that this this compound arose uh, close to 5 500 million years ago um in what what are known as ancestral nathostomes Uh, and these are um and as well as ancestral agnathans and we're talking um and i'll I'll quote a little bit of a a line from this paper and it says here that uh during the radiation of the gennathostomes, the ancestral cartilaginous fish lineage diverged from the ancestral bony fish lineage and the ancestral bony fishes later diverged to the ancestral ray fin bony fishes. Um, bear with me. The ancestral lobe fin fishes and, lo- uh, and the, the lungfishes. So um and then ancestral tetrapods evolved from lobe finned fish ancestors. And these tetrapods in turn diverged into contemporary amphibians, reptiles, birds and mammals. During the radiation of the gnathosomes, the primary sequences of ACTH and alpha MSH and the organization of POMSI would be subject to selection pressures. Um so what, what it's basically saying, and I'll include this paper in the show notes, is that um since five hundred million years ago, we've had the shaping of this key key hormone called proopiomelanocortin, uh, and it is preserved all the way back, well before we crawled out of this primordial soup um, as, as 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 ancestral amphibians. It's it's existing in in jawless fishes. That's how old this is. This is five hundred million years old. So um, when we're thinking about fundamental um, biology and what is actually going on here. It seems to me completely missing the picture if we're not taking into account this ancient um, hormone that uh, has been existing for this long. I
1: I totally agree with you, and I think the answers to um, a lot of the health issues that we see in society these days is to go back and look at evolution and and how we evolved. And, um, you know, POMC is critical. It was obviously around well before we were dha is another classic example these are molecules which have been preserved by evolution for a specific reason because of their ability to transfer energy and information efficiently to drive the progression and advancement of each particular species to who we are now as the apex predators on the planet so um it's a if anything um we we all agree we should respect history and part of respecting history is understanding that evolutionary biology and implementing it because what we really need to be doing is looking to build an ancient future, which is built on these ancient principles rather than trying to reinvent the wheel.
0: Yeah. And, and really the, the appreciation of Pompsey is to understand how much more than a food story the the whole uh, health is. And, um, Yes, we we we're really seeing great improvements by doing low carbohydrate and doing carnivore. and but it it's it's only part of the picture. And until we understand um how something like POMC works, then I, I feel like um people are always gonna be maybe not necessarily getting or, or expressing or accessing that that optimal health until and longevity until they can um you know tailor their lifestyle or optimize other parts of their lifestyle with regard to sunlight exposure um, that, that we talked about um, and, yeah, so and grounding like, and everything so, else.
1: So let's just um, briefly build on the POMC story and why it's important to understanding how the story is not just a food story when it comes to health and longevity. So I touched on melanin being one of the key... Um, proteins that is being made from prom, from POMC. Melanin is something which is um, we regard as a black hole pigment. And so in quantum physics, black holes trap all frequencies of light. And so melanin being the way that it is, it's essentially a pigment. Um, so it's not just on the surfaces. It's also deep inside of us in tissues like the brain and tissues like the gut, like Dr. Cruz touched on. What melanin does, though, is that it takes UV light and it uses that to charge-separate water or split water into molecular hydrogen, molecular oxygen, and electrons. Now let's rewind back to what we were talking about earlier on in the podcast, electron transport chain with electrons feeding into the mitochondria. Could an electrons that were split from water via melanin and UV light be used to feed into that? Possibly. Molecular oxygen is the terminal electron acceptor inside of mitochondria. And so that's needed to oxygenate cells. So is all of the oxygen that is inside of our cells just from purely respiration or breathing as we know it, or is it also from the charge separation of water from UV light? I, th- I think it's the la- I think it's both. It's not just the oxygen that we breathe, and in addition to that, molecular hydrogen H two is made from the splitting of water of um, via melanin and UV light. Molecular hydrogen is one of the strongest antioxidants on the planet because of its ability to neutralize the hydroxyl radical, which is the strongest reactive oxygen species of them all. And um, so we from one molecule, melanin, this magic molecule, we are able to use UV light to create three of the absolute most important parameters inside of mitochondria which is the better metabolism so like the more melanin that you have inside of your cells the better that those cells are going to operate at a, at a quantum level at an energetic thermodynamic level and um, this is why it's not just a food story because food is not the only input into mitochondria it's electrons it's hydrogen it's um it's uh it's electrons and then the the, the considerations of hydrogen and oxygen I read this book about melanin by Arturo Solis Herrera. Um, I love that his middle name is Solis. Um, and uh, he even went as far as to say that what we consider as energy from food is not actually energy. Food is just there as biomass, and it is used as the building blocks for proteins and sugars, like DNA has a sugar backbone, and muscle is obviously made from protein, etc. cetera. Um, I would probably say that there's a, a bit of nuance to it because if we loop in the quantum angle, I think food has a it's, – its primary role is to provide a biomass for us to be built as the physical um, body that we are in addition to all the other bodies that we have inside of us. I'm going esoteric now, consciousness, et cetera, et cetera. But food also contains that information, which is that electromagnetic barcode of um, the light environment that it was grown in. And so if you marry the two together, Food isn't just providing that light information; it is also providing biomass, um, and it's more—it's less energy and more information and building blocks.
0: Yeah, amazing, and and I, I'm really glad that you you brought up melanin. I'm I'm really glad. Let, let like let's quickly riff on melanin because when 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 Dr. Jack Cruz talked about melanin to me, um, it wasn't something that I that had even come into my mental framework in terms of. Relating to health and relating to metabolic health or anything like that, but um, you know d- digging deeper into it 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 is exactly what he has has said it is um it seems to be an incredibly diverse and again highly conserved compound um, so melanin exists in fungi it exists in bacteria it exists in plants um, there's obviously there's three main types of melanin uh in, in humans, those are eumelanin, pheomelanin, and neuromelanin. Um, and these uh, are the reason why some people are darker than others, it's why skin has its pigment, it's why your hair has has a pigment and, and it's all because of, of melanin. And the the fat fascinating properties of this chemical, I mean, Joel, I, I've been doing some reading and it's it's incredible. The, this chemical is being actively researched by biotech. Uh, companies because of its in- incredible properties Um so as you as you exactly mentioned it can absorb all visible light and even um, non-visible light um, extending to ultraviolet and infrared light so it's basically sucking in all this electromagnetic radiation and and then the question is okay well what does it doing with that um, electromagnetic radiation? Well, um, this paper here is, is saying that uh, studies in fungi shown that melanin harvests energy from electromagnetic radiation for metabolic use in a process that involves melanin's electrical properties, referred to as radiosynthesis. So exactly what what we're talking about is that this is a compound that is allowing us to harness the natural electromagnetic frequencies from the sun, uh, i.e., uh, visible, non-visible light, use it to to power ourselves and pa- power our our cells. Um, it, it's incredible. Um, I mean, that again illustrates why we're not only talking about about food here. The uh, the fascinating point that I um, read here, and it made me. This is a little bit of an aside, um, uh, I'll, and I'll read this this paper out. Is that um, since fungal melanins play a key roles during human and plant pathogenesis, drugs that can inhibit melanin biosynthesis in fungi are um, a potential interest. So, uh, in the case of plant pathogens, compounds that inhibit fungal melanin biosynthesis uh, already serve as important fungicides in agriculture. So, um, you know, we, we're talking about this idea of how a melanoma has increased in, in prevalence. Uh, and incidents in in the modern world. And we know that uh, industrial agricultural uses a whole bunch of fungicides. And I had a thought, um, and this is just complete speculation, hypothesis and conjecture, Jalal, but um, it was an interesting idea is that what if we're ingesting uh, a degree of – these compounds that are interfering with melanin synthesis, and that it might be a dietary trigger for um, melanoma because we know that so often melanomas aren't in, occurring in sun exposed areas. So uh, uh, that's a little bit of an aside, but I really wanted to harp on this idea of how important melanin is and how is what stimulates melanin release. It, again, it comes back to pro opio melanocortin and, and this melanocortin system uh, and that like- we, we talked about earlier.
1: And Yep, yeah, and, and UV light has also being that key input stimulus. The, um, That's a really nice uh, wrap-up of the melanin story. And I, one small thing to add is that I touched on reactive oxygen species and reactive nitrogen species as being kind of some bad actors when there's too many of them around. Well, they get mopped up by melanin. Melanin also clears up all heavy metals. And probably mm-hmm. the most common heavy metal that we deal with is deuterium, which sounds a bit strange because most people consider hydrogen a non-metal, but then why is it in the group one of the um, periodic table of elements? Because it has an ability to act like a metal as well. It can be an electron donor or an electron receiver. And so um, deuterium is the most ubiquitous heavy metal that we are interacting with, and we don't know mm. that. And everyone's banging on about mercury toxicities, et cetera. I'm a dentist. I've removed plenty of amalgams in my time. I recently had a had a check to assess my heavy metal levels and um, there, there wasn't much to write home about, which was great news. But to me, it just um, speaks of the melanin content, not just on my surfaces, but deep inside of my tissues as well. And I think we're living in a society where to have fairer skin, at least from my culture, is a desirable thing. And um, for instance, you know, uh, in the subcontinent, there's a there's a, there's a cream that's called Fair and Lovely, so um, they're trying to wash away the um, the natural dark pigmentation full of melanin that we've been well endowed with. Um, and uh, you know, um, if I was to be a um, if I was to be a, a well known health advocate, I'd probably say make melanin great again because <laughs> I think <laughs> it's so important for everybody's health.
0: Yeah, um, I, I love it, and. I read another a paper again talking about this ability to detoxify heavy metals that speculated that that some of the South Asian um, reasons why, and a lot of people have dark hair, um, most of the planet has uh, dark hair, uh, dark um, eyes, is that if we're eating um, a, a diet on, on the shore, uh, perhaps it does have a degree of heavy metals, um, the melanin will be excreting that through the hair follicle. Um, detoxifying and excreting that so um, it's a re- very very much a wonder chemical and uh, I guess cultivating your your melanin uh, building your melanin through smart sun exposure gradient sun exposure the building of a solar callus uh, is how how you
1: how we do that spot on spot on it's the the key thing that I'm thinking when I'm talking to patients it's returning to nature. Exposure to sun, as you said, gradient exposure, controlled exposure, sensible, safe exposures, responsible. But at the same time, it's also blocking all these um, artificial lights which are just degrading all of our surfaces so that even for some people their surfaces are so broken down because of the overexposures to these artificial lights and electromagnetic frequencies that even if they were to go into the sun, they don't have the machinery inside of their surfaces to benefit from the sun and that is where you need to have someone with this quantum lens around to be able to help you rebuild
0: those surfaces and that can take time definitely yeah yeah the uh Rome wasn't built on a day it takes you a while to uh walk into the forest so it takes a uh quite a while to to walk out of the forest uh as well yeah we we could talk for, for a very long time about this, and I'm, but I'm, I'm really glad we have because um, often, especially those who are following Dr. Cruz's work, um, things can get quite technical quite quickly when he discusses sheets of melanin in your various organs. But I hope that provides a bit of a background and understanding and maybe even a springboard for people to do their own research uh, into melanin. Um, and there's heaps of, of papers out there. Um, so none of this is conjecture or opinion this is established um science so uh jump on pubmed and 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 have a look through some of these review articles because there's a very comprehensive uh background about about melanin biology pomsea uh, uh uv light stimulating POMC um and melanin um and we, yeah i mean there's so much we could go on for for a long time uh I wanted to pivot now maybe to wrap wrap our podcast up by talking a little bit about the recent health summit that we had here in Albury. And Giles, you spoke about light and you gave a really nice overview of, of the concepts of quantum health and circadian biology. And it was a very very well received um, talk, and I had lots of thinking um, uh, good comments about about your talk specifically so um any reflections or any thoughts about the health summit um, or anything you'd like to share in, in in the aftermath well um
1: it was great to attend, and I appreciate the the invitation and uh, I thought it was a lovely weekend um, for a few reasons networking is always great because you're meeting with a uh, community that is like-minded all gunning for the same goals which is optimal health longevity um, and uh, building bridges and um, sharing the wealth of knowledge that we all possess um, healing so that was a great aspect of it and I think it's not just networking um, with community members but also networking amongst colleagues as well and kind of bridging the gaps that we all have because we you and I we don't know everything you know, things that I don't know and vice versa. And, um, the more that we connect and the more that we collaborate, um, the more that we can share our own knowledges so that patients and, and, and listeners can, can benefit, um, and, and heal themselves. So, um, uh, I think, I think it was a fabulous event. You guys nailed it. It was a resounding success and I only heard good things about it as well. So congratulations.
0: Yeah. Thanks Joel. And, um, you, it was, a, it was very encouraging and, fantastic to meet so many uh, like-minded people and people who are motivated to Im- improve their health so we we're going to have there's a lot of exciting plans in the works for future events um that we we uh, are planning and so so definitely stay tuned for that and we will be releasing the videos of uh dr dr giles talks my talk dr chafee's talk uh, and Jake Walker's talk on on a YouTube channel very very soon, so so really stay tuned for that. And maybe before we wrap this up, we you could give the listeners an idea about your event that you you've been organising. Um, who who what what is that going to be about? Um, the Quantum Health Summit, and who's speaking about and um, what what can they learn or what what they need to know? Yeah, sure, thank you. Um, so
1: I'm holding a Quantum Health Summit in November. Uh, of this year, on the fourth of November, a Saturday, and also the fifth of Sunday, uh, we'll be holding it down in Albury, New South Wales, at uh, Jake walkie's farm, which is uh, very, very exciting, and uh, uh, honoured to be um, joining forces with the with the walkies And we'll be talking all things quantum because uh, there is a, a gap of knowledge um, amongst health professionals in this quantum space, which you and I have touched on, and um, I believe that the onus is on people at the grassroots level to affect that change. And I see it as um an important role for me to pass on to people what I know to pique their interest and their curiosity so that they can start start to demand better from their health clinicians. Because that is the only way we're going to force health clinicians to do better. The beauty about it though is that all of these quantum health principles are in a paradigm of health that doesn't necessarily require healthcare practitioners and big pharma and surgery, etc. So, um, I see it as a very important um, way of empowering patients with the knowledge and tools to heal themselves. And that's what the summit is all about. We'll be—I'll um, be speaking with uh, Dr. Pran Yoga Nathan, as well as Kira Lee, and obviously Pharma Jake. And um, we'll be talking about things like the quantum realm. Um, Kira will be giving a hormone masterclass. And um, I'll be talking about, uh, I don't know, plenty of things I could talk about. I'm keen to talk about non-visual photoreception. Um, That might be something because there's not only a lot of science and physics behind that, but there's also an esoteric lens to that as well, which um, is what I really love to riff on um and uh jake will obviously be talking about the uh, regenerative aspects of um um his farming practices and um the um the values that drive all of that um sad that you can't make it this year but um hopefully um at another one um the next one you'll be there um speaking and offering your wisdom and um yeah really look um would encourage listeners to consider coming down to that because uh In addition to the great knowledge it is always a a great networking event and um there's nothing like participating in these events live rather than i mean we have online tickets um for for people if they want to watch the recording but as I'm, i'm sure you can attest to this as well max when you're speaking live um we as speakers it's a different experience in a in a really exciting way but it's also um exciting for listeners as well um rather than just watching it on a computer screen so Um, i I could have done it in sydney i could have done it in melbourne but i choose chose to do it in albury in regional new south wales because i wanted it to be respectful and in line with quantum principles low emf environment we'll probably have marquees out the back it'll probably be a grounded event it could be the first barefoot health summit um so uh there's uh plenty of opportunities for uh, um for us to conduct the summit in line with quantum principles and who knows we might even have some um, cold thermogenesis ice bars as well
0: yeah fantastic it, it's it's so exciting and I'm, I'm really pumped to see events uh like these really develop and really give access and availability of people to to learn and to meet like-minded people and 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 give them the Guidance to implement this for the, the benefit of themselves and, and their family. And, look, that, that's essentially – that's why we're in this, both you and I, uh, Jalal, is because um, we're trying to help our, our patients and our clients um, live their, their, their optimally, optimal lives with, with the longest health span and, and longevity. So um, thanks for that. We'll include the information to your event in, in the show notes as well. So um, people, if they're interested, can, can check it out. Uh, Always worth a trip to Aubrey uh, if you haven't, if you're considering. Uh, making the journey Uh, again it's not too far from sydney it's not too far from melbourne and you can get yourself some regenerative meat (laughs) you can uh, meet meet some locals you can get into the country air the low emf environment um it's it's fantastic so definitely encourage encourage that so look Jalal, thank you so much uh we've we've had a we've covered a lot we've covered a heap of ground in this in this podcast Uh, i think it's going to be really uh a good prelude and maybe even something to listen to before the jack crew series so people can get a bit of uh uh, context and, and help their understanding so um thank you very much and let's talk again sometime sounds great thank you so much for having me max Thanks for listening to the Regenerative Health Podcast. I hope this episode helped you better understand some aspect of improving your lifestyle for optimal health. If you enjoyed this episode, then share it out with friends and family. Leaving a five-star review on Apple or Spotify podcasts also helps spread the message. Thank you and see you next
1: time.